0: Representative Kendra Horn pulled off one of the biggest upsets of the 2018 election, winning Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District and flipping it into Democratic control. This year, as she seeks re-election to continue representing this Oklahoma City District, she faces Republican State Senator Stephanie Bice. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder, and in a previous episode of the Listen Frontier podcast, we interviewed Senator Bice about her campaign for Congress. In this episode we present a recent interview with Representative Horn. These interviews were conducted in the Frontier's Oklahoma City office and have not been edited. You can find more coverage of the 5th District race by visiting readfrontier.org. Once again, you can also listen to the interview with Senator Bice in the previous episode, which is already on the Listen Frontier podcast feed. Here is the interview with Representative Horn, which was recorded on October 8th want start with you know what's probably been your biggest criticism from your opposition, um, and it's been uh, your support or what they see as your lack of support on on energy. And of course, you know you've, you've said you're not a, you wouldn't support a ban on fracking. When it comes to votes on, on offshore drilling. It's not really relevant to Oklahoma companies. But how would, how would you differentiate yourself from from Senator Vice when it comes to uh, the energy sector? and your support for for various policies.
1: Yeah, so let's start with those attacks. Those attacks have been roundly debunked. I'll go through why they are false and utterly misleading uh, and do not reflect my record on energy uh, and my support for the oil and gas industry in Oklahoma, period. The conservative Washington Examiner newspaper called me the most pro-fossil fuel Democrat in Congress. And let's talk about those votes for a minute and really what they actually mean and then I'll talk about what I've done to support them. But those votes were, um, the votes that they keep referring to, uh, were a couple of votes to limit offshore drilling off the East Coast, there are a few places that that's, that would have applied to. But let's be clear, not one single Oklahoma company has offshore drilling interest. Not one single Oklahoma company in fact, my votes, I think, were actually better for Oklahoma's oil and gas industry because it increases the competitiveness of, of Oklahoma in this sphere. Because if you have uh, these multinational companies, which are the ones that drill offshore, mm-hmm. uh, those those companies aren't here in Oklahoma. They're not bringing jobs to Oklahoma's oil and gas industry. And if you continue to increase competition, what you're doing is lowering the price in a time where. Uh, oil and gas is already having some challenges. So actually my votes were better for Oklahoma's oil and gas industry and job creation. uh, And it is completely the opposite and has been wholly mischaracterized. Yeah. The other vote was a vote to limit drilling in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Again, no Oklahoma company has plans to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, I take it very seriously. Every single vote that comes up, both you know, making sure that we're taking care of the environment and having thoughtful policy, but also not doing so at the expense of uh, our current uh, energy industry, affordability, and national security. All of those things have to go together uh, to make sure that we're taking care of our people and jobs and our environment. Uh, and and I think that's the that's the thing that is wholly mischaracterized. Uh, and uh, and I think if you want to look to some verification of this, again, I'll point you to the Washington Examiner, yeah. but also to the op-ed that Steve Agee, who has a very long career in the oil and gas industry, um, uh, put in the the uh, uh, the business. Um, record, um, thank you, journal, journal Record. Journal Record. record. Journal record. Yeah. I apologize. I, I drew blank for a second. <laughs> Where was it? A journal Record. Um, that that will have. Uh, some some more of that that detailed information. So the, the what I see is these attacks is just it's another blatant partisan attempt uh, to play on stereotypes and uh, and mischaracterize and falsify my record for standing up for Oklahoma. Uh, I also reach out and talk to uh, Oklahoma's oil and gas companies before every vote. We had conversations with all of the all of the companies here, confirming that. Indeed, no Oklahoma company has any offshore drilling interest because I do my homework. Yeah. I do my homework on every single boat. And I think that um, you know the default, The they keep pointing to the headline in the Oklahoman. Well, the default to do something just because people have always done it doesn't mean it's the best thing to do mm-hmm. for Oklahoma, for our industries, mm-hmm. and for our future. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what I have done... Uh, is be a strong voice for policies that are in all of the above approach including uh, educating my colleagues on the importance of natural gas as a key piece of the puzzle Mm -hmm. in both reducing greenhouse gas emissions and supporting affordable energy and sustainable energy which is good for our national security uh, and for domestic capacity. Uh, I've stood up to leaders in my party when they proposed a federal ban on fracking. Uh, I proposed uh, purchasing more oil for the uh, for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, especially when yeah, especially when you know, especially when we were seeing prices dip. I was actively taking steps to fix that in Congress, working to hold Saudi Arabia accountable when they were you know threatening dumping and you know. All of those things. So my record on energy is actually a strong one. Uh, additionally, as a member of the, uh, the House Oil and Gas Caucus, the Democratic Caucus, I have spent a lot of time working with my colleagues to help them understand why these all or nothing solutions are really, they, they leave us behind. Because when we're talking about, to me, when we're talking about environmental policy, when we're talking about energy policy, We have to think both now and long term, we have to think about what is the strategic approach that we need to take to this Mm -hmm. to ensure we are protecting our nation's security, energy affordability, and taking care of our communities at the same time. Natural gas has done a number of those, uh, a number of those things over the past decade, decade and a half, uh, especially when we look at greenhouse gas emissions. So let's take that, uh, for example, uh, og and right here in Oklahoma City, uh, has reduced harmful greenhouse gas emissions uh, over the past decade by 40% uh, by shifting from coal-fired power plants to natural gas-fired power plants. That's not insignificant. Actually, I think that's pretty significant. And of course, building in renewable energy sources, because Oklahoma is an energy state. We're not just an oil and gas state, we absolutely are, but we're also an energy state. And and that's what we really need from uh, a representative in this district that understands the complexities of the market understands the importance of uh, addressing all all of the above. Uh, I have a record of I have a record of also supporting other Oklahoma uh, energy industries as well. And that includes, you know, uh, our wind industry but also working Hard uh, to support uh, biofuels industry. Which uh, let's take that for an example. Loves uh, has a has another uh, renewable energy company, uh, and and they do a lot of work in biodiesel. Which again, it's an all of the above approach. It's not an either or, which is the problem I have with some people in my party, you know, demanding these, you know, yeah. these massive shifts it don't it doesn't work because 80% of our energy infrastructure right now is based on hydrocarbons. If we want to take care of our environment and our our jobs and industries, we have to have a thoughtful long-term plan and strategy that ensures that uh, we maintain affordability, but also we're continuing forward on, um, on, on addressing climate issues. It's one of the, you know, sitting on the Armed Services Committee, I know from talking to our military leaders is one of the biggest threats to our national security. Uh, and by increasing the amount of natural gas that, that we use uh, and, and using that as a, a critical piece of this puzzle, we have reduced household and, and energy costs uh, and we have uh, eliminated the need for foreign reliance or reliance on foreign oil. So it's we're bringing this capacity domestically, which is better for us from a national security standpoint. We're reducing energy costs um, and allowing for opportunities to build in new new ways of doing this but these all-or-nothing approaches either everything has to be as it was or everything has to change overnight uh, leave us with none of the above solutions right it's it's nobody wins because then you're going to get a loss of jobs it's going to be a whiplash and we need to we need to business to have the ability to, to plan and look forward and 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 understand what they've got to do and to let technology develop to the point where they're right so we shouldn't be stopping this, but we shouldn't be artificially pushing it forward. And I was really proud of the fact that last year, um, at the end of the year in, in the appropriations uh, bill, we were able to get the, uh, the, the tax credits for biodiesel uh, reinstated and, uh, and, and forward for a few years to help build that industry. That's thousands of jobs right here in Oklahoma and across the country, energy jobs. Uh, and so I think my record as a, as compared to my opponents is that I understand the complexities of the industry. I understand all of the different competing approaches and I'm going to look at every single detail of votes that come before me and make decisions that are in the best interest of Oklahoma's industries. and. And, and take that approach, and I'll continue to stand up to my party. It's it's not hard, because some of this other stuff that they think is a good idea is not. I mean, I look at California, right? They've got all of these rolling blackouts and brownouts. Well, that's because they don't have enough capacity to meet the needs. That's why we have to have a smart, thoughtful approach that recognizes what what it actually looks like versus these... I don't know, these sim- oversimplified things, you know, these hashtag simple us versus them approach that just leaves us all further behind.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that makes sense. Um, let
0: me ask you about uh, you know, another vote in which you're kind of in contrast to your party. So you voted against a, a, a raise in the federal minimum wage to $15 yeah. for six years. You know, uh, so there's a cost calculator by MIT that says an adult living in Oklahoma County would need to make at least $11.39 an hour to earn a yeah. minimum wage. But just add a child to the mix and that goes up to $23.72. So I know obviously you said there's regional differences, Mm -hmm. but isn't $15 even still maybe too low for a market like Oklahoma City?
1: Well, let's talk about what that actually means, right? And and where we are. So you've got a couple of realities, right? We've got the reality uh, that families are facing and individuals trying to earn a living and make ends meet as well as businesses that have to be able to pay them. So when I'm thinking about... Economic policies. I look at it through that lens of how do we structure this in a way that's both good for people and good for business and economy and economic opportunity. So people in our know, pocketbooks. We got to look at those together. So the bill that I'm a co-sponsor of, it's called the Phase Act. Is that right? Phase. Phase yeah, Act. Phase <laughs> Act. And what it does is it takes a regionalized approach to it. You mentioned the $11 um, number. And the, what the Phase Act does is does it takes into account it, it takes into account the cost of living uh, you know and the and and the rent and all of the regionalized things it's a number of calculators and what i like about that is it's actually based on real world numbers and it does very quickly get minimum wage up to 10 11 dollars an hour and it continues forward in a long term in a way that's long term sustainable it's these dramatic shifts that especially our small business owners just aren't able to keep up with that and keep the doors open and the lights on. Uh, and and the, the difference between that and the, the bill that passed the House is that $15 an hour uh, is very different in Oklahoma than it is in uh, Oklahoma City versus New York City or Shawnee versus San Francisco. It, the cost of living are incredibly different. So it's actually less helpful for somebody in San Francisco to have a $15 an hour minimum wage than it is for somebody in Oklahoma to have an $11 an hour minimum wage. But let's talk about what the other part of the problem is. We haven't raised the minimum wage in over a decade. That's more than 10 years. So it's fallen so far behind it makes it more difficult to catch up. Uh, That's why one of the other things I like about the Phase Act and I think we need to begin to incorporate in policies are automatic triggers that are based on economic indicators like inflation and cost of goods. There's a number of things that we could base that on that help businesses plan. Because over the long term, what we're talking about is the need for businesses to be able to anticipate and that continued pressure moving forward so wages don't fall so far behind uh, the cost of living. That's what's caused such a big gap between people who are like struggling And barely making it by and people that are doing really really well Mm -hmm. and what we need to do is have build our policies in such a way that we create a stronger middle class we we build ramps up to that middle class instead of these sharp cliffs Uh, so it's not about a handout and on the other side of that right is the decreased need for people to utilize some of the uh, social services programs Mm -hmm. that are literally life or death for them right now. We should be thinking through how we give people that ramp, runway, that ramp to do better and encourage and incentivize it. Um, so yes, we need to increase the minimum wage. Unfortunately, I'm sure you probably remember in 2014, the state legislature here prohibited municipalities from raising the minimum wage. Yeah. Well, that is counterproductive. And the minimum wage is not it's not meant to be the median wage, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's meant to be the minimum wage and that drives up um, other wages. So it doesn't, we don't have to make that all, push that all the way up to the median wage. It just, it needs to continue up. But I think that's also the difference that between, you know, the two of us is where where are our priorities? My priorities are fighting for Oklahomans, uh, who are doing their best to get by. They're, they're just trying to take care of their families, put food on the table. You know, those working Oklahomans that are just doing their best um, and are small business owners and, and thoughtful policy that allows all of us to succeed. Um, I think we can contrast that with, uh, with my opponent um, on policies that she supported that actually make it a lot harder for these same working Oklahomans. Uh, Because if we're talking about other policies, like tax policy, let's look at tax policy for a second. Um, I just introduced a proposal to double the earned income tax credit. Mm -hmm. So the earned income tax credit is really an incredible tool for helping to lift families uh, and individuals out of poverty or to push them closer to that place where they're getting out of poverty. It's one of the most effective tools that we have in in our arsenal. And, uh, and, and by expanding that, we're helping families. And one of the great things about EITC is it actually increases as wages increase. So it incentivizes people being able to earn more versus some of our other programs that have these hard cliffs that if you earn 50 cents more an hour, you lose all of your support for say childcare or food support. That's it's a pretty unrealistic place. So it's a, it's a gradual thing. Um, and what, what that would mean for families, say a family of four earning $40,000 a year, um, is an additional $1,000 in their pockets every year. But like my proposal, uh, and you know, that's a, it's, I think it's almost like $5,000 a year that they would get back. That's real money when you're talking about a family of four. My proposal also allows individuals, single individuals without children, which is a group that often falls through the cracks. They're making you know, very little. They're trying to get by. Um, would include them in this. So, you know, if you're making $16,000 a year, you're going to be able to, and you're an individual without children, you're going to be able to benefit from that. So that's a real benefit, because in tax policy, I don't think we should punish people for doing well, right? That doesn't make sense. But we should, we need to be asking everybody to do their part. So it's not just, you know, working on clothes that we're putting the burden on. And that's what we saw in the 2017 tax cuts, 50% of the benefit went to the wealthiest corporations and individuals. 50%, you know, they promised, a, the president promised up to $9,000 in the pockets of families, they had not seen it. In fact, what we've seen is negative wage growth over the past year. What we've seen is an additional $2 trillion in debt and deficit that our nation was facing when we went into this unprecedented pandemic. Instead of Instead of having money um, to, to help us get through this, we had $2 trillion more debt, and we put it on the backs of working families. Contrast that with, with Stephanie, and she has voted repeatedly for tax policies that benefit the wealthiest, that would give tax breaks to the people that had the most, and she has voted again and again to cut the earned income tax credit. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, like, what are our priorities, right? Asking everybody to do their part is the fair thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's how we bring everybody with us. Mm-hmm. Um, because that thousand dollars for a family, that makes a huge difference in whether or not they're able to keep the lights on, keep food on the table. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, I know we're running out of time. So no. I, I, I won't ask, no, it's probably tonight gonna be asked about COVID and the crisis mm-hmm. response. I'm gonna pass that question. Sure. But I do want to ask you two COVID-related questions. Yeah. One is the president said he was ending negotiations with the House. Maybe something's changed this morning. and If it has, I haven't seen it yet. But um, there, there is some overlap where there's some agreement. I, I think the big points are you know $1,200 in stimulus funds, our stimulus payments, and then you know billions in support of airlines. Where the disagreement is in a variety of other things like more unemployment relief and aid for schools and other programs. Yeah. Is there enough compromise right now to move forward? I mean, you, if If where the president and House House Democratic leaders are agreement, if that was a bill put forward, is that something you would support? Do you feel like we should be moving forward with what agreement they're in place? Or do you support leadership right now, essentially asking for more to be part of the equation?
1: Well, I think it was a real shame that the president suddenly called off negotiations when uh, the Speaker and Mnuchin were getting close to an agreement. Um, But I'll tell you, uh, Ben, I've been frustrated since the very beginning at the games that are being played on all sides of this, uh, and I have not been afraid, nor will I ever be afraid to call it out Uh, on uh, on any side. uh, I don't care if it's coming from the House, the Senate, the White House, Republicans, Democrats, I don't care, um, because the stakes are too high. So to me, the bottom line is we need a relief package that's timely, targeted, and transparent, uh, and it has to meet the the biggest needs that our communities are facing right now mm-hmm. uh, we're facing an unprecedented health and economic crisis and we've got to make sure that what we put into place fills those big buckets as as you said uh, and I know there's I know there's a pathway the problem solvers caucus the march to common ground pathway that we put together and you know I'm sure you know this but the problem solvers is 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans and we put together this roadmap that showed that there is common ground to be reached in all of these areas. Our package included uh, funding for stimulus checks, it included more funding for small businesses and our especially our most significantly impacted industries. It included funding for state and local governments to address the, the, the shortfalls, uh, not to make up for other decisions made, you know, that places have made, uh, but it also included funding for schools, public schools. Let me be clear. I am going to fight tooth and nail to make sure the public dollars stay in public schools and do not get diverted. And I'll stand up to Betsy DeVos any day of the week when she tries to pull those those monies out to give them to private schools. It included uh, it include it did include help for the airlines. It included um, expanded unemployment. I mean it. Filled those major buckets that included more support for healthcare, testing, tracing, all of the things that we know we need. So that's how I know there's a pathway there. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is keep everybody at the table. It was unacceptable. I voted against both of the heroes packages, that we had two partisan bills that didn't meet the three three Ts of good governments. Well, it wasn't timely targeted and transparent. If we want timely relief, it's got to get across the finish line. Otherwise, we're just standing here feeling good about ourselves and people aren't getting help. Uh, targeted, it has to be related to the actions that we need to take to help people as a result of this pandemic that had a bunch of unrelated provisions. Even if some of them are things we need to tackle, it had no place in a stimulus package. And then the transparency is in how things are negotiated mm-hmm. and also in, you know, how the funds are spent. That's an ongoing thing, right? But. The same thing happened on the Senate side, right? You got packages that were full of political pet projects, and then McConnell saved the table for like 30 seconds and then walked away. I'm critical of the Speaker when, you know, the House walked away from from this these negotiations early on and just said let the Senate do something. Um, and I was critical and continue to be critical of the Senate for not doing anything for months, knowing that these things were coming. It makes me so angry that. People think that let's play games with this and this canceling of negotiations when there was progress is just unacceptable. And then picking winners and losers in one industry is also not acceptable. Yes, we need to help the airlines. Absolutely we do. But we don't need to do it at the expense of our small businesses here, our restaurants, our hospitality industry, our small venues. They shouldn't be left behind. How is that right and fair? What about the people that are still out of work? We need to help them. What about the, you know, municipalities that have seen a drop in their revenue to make sure that, you know, police or fire, first responders, sanitation workers, that they still have jobs? It all has to fit together. It doesn't have to be extreme. So, I mean, I think to me that's the, like, that's the biggest thing is what are we doing? And, and I'm just, it's all of this finger pointing is really frustrating, yeah. um, and I'm gonna keep pushing. I have with problem solvers, we've continued to push, and I think a lot of us feel that way because yeah. people are hurting and they need help, um, and, 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 and we need everybody at the table. I mean, just the bottom line is, we need uh, Speaker and Mnuchin need to get back to the table because um, that's the White House and, and, and the House, but the Senate needs to be there too. Just digging in your heels and pretending like we don't have to, we don't have the the duty and responsibility to help people is, to me, it's unconscionable. And you know, there are common sense ways to do this. Now we have to be fiscally responsible, that's why it should be targeted, right? We don't need to be just throwing things against the wall, and seeing what sticks. Let's do the things we know we need to do, and then we can go from there. Yeah, just one more question. Is that that fine, just one more What time is it? Huh? Twelve to four. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, we'll be fine. We're a few
0: minutes late. We'll get until 12.15. Okay. Okay, just one more question. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. We won't take until 12.15, but I'm sure tonight you'll be asked about to um, provide your thoughts on the president's response to COVID, so I'll, I'll bypass that question and wait for tonight. But in many ways, it's kind of been left up the states and how they've responded. And so I wanna ask you, how, how what, what do you think about the state of Oklahoma's response? And particularly Governor Kevin Stitt, what have you seen? Um, do you feel like he's approached us the right way? Are, are you critical in some areas, but just kind of how would you characterize what you've seen from state leaders in their response to the pandemic?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, in order for us to address this unprecedented crisis, both health and economic, we really need to listen to the advice of public health officials. And and because this is a novel virus, we've of course discovered more throughout the process. But the consistent advice of our public health experts say that wearing a mask, maintaining distance, washing our hands, doing those things um, are the best ways that we can control and curb the spread of this virus. And uh, and that means that we need to use policy uh, that follows that advice and makes sure that we are communicating that clearly with, with our communities. It's not about instilling fear, it's about making sure that we are clearly communicating what it takes for us to increase public health because the only way we're really going to get the economy back going again is if we control the spread of this virus. Unfortunately, over the past few weeks, we've seen a rise in uh, in COVID cases. Right now we're, we're seeing you know, indications that we may be approaching capacity in, in some of our ERs. We saw record numbers of COVID cases over the past few days. Uh, and what we do know from Oklahoma city and other places that put mask requirements in place is that they work. When the city council and mayor Holt passed the mask requirement here in Oklahoma city, three weeks later, we saw a 30% decline. Um, and, And I think that it is the role of leaders to do those things sometimes, to set examples and requirements that help to increase public safety uh, and decrease the the transmission of of this virus. And, you know, Oklahoma is at the top of transmission, unfortunately. So I think the numbers speak for themselves. And this this idea that we're going to politicize something that is a public health um, a public health good for all of us, uh, is troubling to me. Um, and, and that's why I think we should, we've seen different outcomes in states that require masks. And, uh, and we're really mindful about how they followed that advice. And we've seen several times where the recommendations of the White House Coronavirus Task Force were directly contradicting the state's actions and what the state was publicly communicating. I think that's worth noting. Um, and and I, also, I also think that it's, it's really critical that we set those good examples. And this is not, look, this is not about limiting anyone's freedom. It's the, the reason it's important for us to wear masks. The reason it's important for us to take these these steps is because what we know about this virus right now is that there's a high degree of asymptomatic carriers and transmission. So what that means is, you know, especially amongst children, they could be carriers and spreading this disease uh, and and not know it. And that's why masks are important. You know, I've seen I've seen different things being equated to like these examples. But to me, this is like the Oklahoma standard, right? We show up for our friends and neighbors, even when it's in, inconvenient, right? Somebody needs something, you're going to help them out. You're going to go out of your way. Well, wearing a mask and following some guidelines that help keep us all safer is, that's just, like, that's who we should be, in my view. And we need to make sure that we're following the public health guidance and, and doing that. And I'll talk about just two other things really quickly in, in this response. One is um, the use of CARES dollars by this governor, uh, as, you know, the Betsy DeVos said was okay, which is absolutely not. It was not intended in the CARES Act to take critical public funds from our public schools that have been, um, that have been already challenged in their funding. To take a quarter of those dollars and, and siphon them off for private schools is just unacceptable. Uh, I, that is not something that we should be doing. Um, and, you know, with, with respect to the unemployment, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what we did with unemployment. We expanded under the CARES Act, um, additionally, for people who are part-time workers, gig workers, self-employed. Uh, but, you know, when the state was taking their time and not getting these critical resources to people, we kept pushing. And my office, we've helped more than 800 Oklahomans get their unemployment benefits that they're entitled to. Uh, I think we've we've done some some really good work there. Uh, But, you know, to me, a lot of this goes down, comes back to this problematic idea of us versus them and this hyper-partisan rhetoric that we are hearing. It's a lot of the attacks that you're seeing against me. um, And, and it, and it, and it really uh, creates a false picture uh, because I know that we have a lot more in common than we have that's different. We have a lot more that really unites us than divides us, but we have to be willing to look at those things. That's why I'm proud of my work with problem solvers caucus. I'm proud of the fact that I've had 23 bills that I've either introduced or co-sponsored that have been signed into law by this president. We've gotten things done, but that's the way how we're going to do it. The only way we're going to get through this is together. And I think the idea that everything has to be turned into some partisan battle hurts all of us. And... We have to be really mindful going through this and not just try to do everything in these, you know, hashtags or 10-word slogans. That's not how we solve complex issues. And Oklahomans, I think, deserve something that's going to fight for them and show up every day and stand up to their party, which I do. Uh, I know that that's the message that's been out there. But I'm sixth in the entire House of Representatives for voting against my party and among House Democrats. So I have no problem standing up to my party or working with them when they're in the right. Same thing with the administration or the other party. It's not about that. It's about what's needed in our communities, what our priorities are.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Listen Frontier. Just a reminder, you can find my interview with Senator Stephanie Bice in another episode that is in the Listen Frontier podcast feed now. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening.